Hello, my dear loves. I'm wrapping up summer in Maine and headed back to DC in a week and a half, and I absolutely cannot wait because it means I get to start having coffees with privacy peeps again when y'all come through town. You probably don't care, but because you can't answer me in real time, I will tell you. My gal pal is flying into Maine next week, and we're going to stay at a beachside Airbnb in this, like, semi-trashy but also beautiful small town in Maine, and she's never been here before. She is from Michigan, though, so at least she has seen, like, water before, and not just the Potomac in D.C. And is that really even water? Anyway, she's going to then drive back to D.C. with me and the pup. Road trips. So much singing. Okay, you don't care, so on to privacy. First of all, there's a big, fat FTC hearing today, September 8th, if you're listening to this later, that I am pumped for. It's on this whole FTC to regulate commercial surveillance situation. One of my besties, Stacey Gray at FPF, will be there to speak. And whenever that girl talks about privacy, I am there for it. She's so good. Also, we all know I am unabashedly a fangirl of Alvaro Bedoya. I wouldn't be surprised if, in the commissioner's closing remarks, he just reads a poem from like an indigenous poet that wishes us peace, and then, as we saw, he leaves the podium. I'm exaggerating, but if you know, you know. Okay, on to the news. Setting myself a three-minute clock so we can all hear less of me and get on to my esteemed guest. And it's a good one today. He's fired up. Trusty sound engineer, C. Money Burns, please start my timer and keep me honest. I love a ticking clock. The news. I actually missed this story, but did you hear the one about how police are using advertising IDs to track certain users and develop, quote, patterns of life to surveil them, sometimes without warrants? They're doing it through a company called Fog, which was developed by, quote, two former high-ranking Department of Homeland Security officials under President George Bush, as AP News reports. So uh, it uses advertising IDs from apps like Waze, Starbucks, and hundreds of others that track people's movements and interests. And then that information is sold to companies like Fog. Police from California to North Carolina have used Fog Reveal to search, quote, hundreds of billions of records from 250 million, million mobile devices, end quote, the report states. The Electronic Frontier Foundation used FOIA requests to discover that Fog sold its software in about 40 contracts to two dozen agencies. In more news on data brokers, the Federal Trade Commission announced recently that it's suing data broker Kachava for selling sensitive location data that can identify specific abortion seekers, religious worshippers, or others who may be at risk of discrimination or even violence, CNN reports. Kachava's clients include Disney, McDonald's, and Hilton. The FTC says Kachava uh, failed to protect consumers when it, quote, publicly published samples of actual consumer data on Amazon's cloud services marketplace and even offered more data to those who paid, end quote. You may recall that President Biden asked the FTC to protect consumers from these kinds of practices after the Dobbs decision came down. Next up in companies in the naughty corner, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner fined Instagram $400 million for its handling of children's data. The DPC's investigation began in 2020 and found that children, so those between 13 and 17 years of age, were allowed to operate business accounts, and those publish users' phone numbers and or email addresses. You can see how that would be problematic. The good news is Instagram says it updated its settings more than a year ago. It also says it disagrees with how the fine was calculated and plans to appeal. Finally, and this is what we're going to talk about today, California just be passing laws under the cloak of darkness while we're all goggling over the ADPPA, you know? At least that's what it feels like. In reality, everything happened above board, but the age-appropriate design code passed unanimously through California Senate on August 30th. It only awaits Governor Gavin Newsom's signature before it's official, and there isn't any indication he'd veto. The code covers for-profit entities captured under CCPA and CPRA that attract users under the age of 18 to their products and services. The bill responds to widespread criticism over how social media companies impact children's mental health and personal safety. Industry is losing its collective mind over the bill. 
which would become effective July 1, 2024. The bill will require websites, platforms, apps, and others with content that may attract children to set the strongest privacy settings by default. And it's no joke either. The penalties for violations are steep. The California Attorney General is authorized to fine companies $2,500 per child affected if you were just negligent about it. If you intentionally violate the law and they find out, you're paying $7,500 for each child affected. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Eric Goldman, a law professor and associate dean at Santa Clara Law School, and I go way back, back to my days at the IPP when we did a bunch of work together. And he was pissed at this California bill. In one blog post, he wrote, in all caps, no one wants this, period. He says it would break the internet. And here's why. Hey, if you aren't reading my newsletter yet, just launched it recently, check it out, would you? It's called the Privacy Beat Newsletter, and it's a super short read. And it takes people's hot takes from Twitter to explain what's hot in privacy in any given week. I'd love your thoughts on it. Does it work for you? Should I pivot? Let me know. You can find it at terratrue.com or just Google the Privacy Beat newsletter and look for my mug on the cover. As always, hope you enjoy this episode. Miss you. Love you. Bye. All right. So, Eric, uh, I wanted to talk to you on this topic because, well, first of all, we go we go back quite a few years, actually. Um, but I recently was uh, looking into this new California code and I was, you know, twittering around and realized that uh, you had actually done a whole bunch of work uh, on this for a while now where it for me, it was a sleeper issue, but you've really been on top of it. So, could you tell uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast and wasn't watching the motions on this uh, push forward, what happened in California um, recently? Um, and let's start there. Uh, yeah, actually, I like that you've started it by framing it as a sleeper issue, because I do think that many people got caught unaware by what was taking place in the California legislature. Um, it is an election year, and that means that legislatures across the country are uh, pushing forward protect kids online measures um, that become very difficult to oppose because uh, every time that somebody speaks out and says, I think this is a bad idea, it, the retort is, well, why do you hate kids? Um, <laughs> so what happened in part is that the California legislature was able to work on this bill without the standard opposition because so many of the people who think that this is a terrible idea, and there are a lot of them, um, were, were boxed in by the Protect Kids Online framing. Um, and this is a, a systemic defect in our legislative model that the legislators can basically misportray their bill as protecting kids online, cause the opposition to fracture or stagnate, and then we get laws that really make no sense. And this is a good example of it. What happened um, in this particular bill uh, is that California has uh, uh, passed a law that mirrors um, in substantial respects, the UK age-appropriate design code that is designed at its core to require businesses to put the needs of children first above their other profit-maximizing interests um, and give some guidance about how businesses are supposed to do that. In California, it was anchored into the existing consumer privacy laws the California Privacy Rights Act that will take effect next year. Um, so it says, it basically iterates on the existing base of privacy laws and adds this new package of child-first obligations on top of the existing privacy rules. 
Now, I'm interested in what you said. I think that's so fascinating that the opposition would be boxed out by by this, you know, well, you must hate kids. And that that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I feel like it makes sense to me that a lot of these children's bills push forward because we all love the children or whatever. But um, why isn't there some way to like, when I saw that this bill passed the Senate, uh, the assembly in California, it's an assembly. We have an assembly and a Senate. Okay. So, okay. So it passed the Senate unanimously. And I thought that's so interesting because even when, you know, when we watched the CPRA come to fruition or the CCPA, like there was so many people speaking out on behalf of small businesses and what it would do to the little guy. And I guess what you're saying is like, if you throw kids into the mix, those voices kind of go away, but unanimously, like there, no one's, no one in the, in the Senate said, well, what about the, you know, who could this harm? And is this a good idea? It's an election year. So anyone who would have voted no would have been ridiculed as hating kids. And and this is something, again, I hope your listeners are getting the message. How do you know that politicians are lying to us? Well, their lips are moving. But if you get past that, that's the corny joke. How do you know they're lying? In an election year, when they say they're trying to protect the kids, they're probably lying to you. So what do you think? Tell us more about what this would do. I know it's mirrored in some ways uh, on the UK code, which is not a, a law. It's a code, right? Um, but it mirrors that in some ways. What would this bill actually do in practice in the US, in California? Well, I'm going to tell you what the bill says. But then the really interesting thing is how are businesses going to make counter moves in response to this bill? And it's absolutely not the way legislatures think it's, they're going to make the counter moves. So the real action is what's going to happen that's not dictated by the bill, but by the counter move. The bill has three, I think, main requirements. Um, the first requirement is that it requires uh, businesses to do what it calls a DPIA, uh, data protection impact assessment, even though some of the things that they might be assessing aren't data protection, they're actually kid safety related measures. So there's already like a nomenclature problem. You say, well, why are you doing DPA if it relates to kid safety? And the answer is because the legislature is trying to anchor it all in the existing privacy law, not because it really belongs there. Um, so it requires a bunch of DPIAs basically before rolling out any online uh, features or products or services that uh, are likely to be accessed by children. And the definition of children is under 18, which differs from things like COPPA, which is under 13. So you're dealing with kids who are 17 years uh, and 11 months. Um, So they're going to look a lot like adults to the business, but still there's going to have to be these DPIAs uh, for uh, the children. The next is that um, there's a bunch of uh, basically uh, standards for what the business must do when interacting with children. Um, some of them are privacy focused, like you're not supposed to be tracking their precise geolocation um, unless you're giving them notice, and in certain cases, not permitted. Um, but also, it requires businesses to do uh, uh, to estimate the age of children, and uh, then to to basically. Uh, uh, adopt their response accordingly. So if you're dealing with younger kids, you would have a different response than if you're dealing with older kids. Um, And then the third thing is it creates this uh, um, task force 
that's supposed to promulgate best practices. And that task force is going to be run by the California Privacy Protection Agency, the CPPA. So again, it's an anchoring and privacy-focused uh, effort, but the task force actually includes a bunch of things that have nothing to do with privacy. So the DPIAs, the, the changes in the operations with respect to the kids, and the task force, those are the three main payloads from the bill. So my understanding so far, and I'm new at this issue, but for for one thing, the DPIAs seem really onerous. Like it seems like it will have to, you know, there's the DPIAs for any new, you know, service feature uh, system and then revisiting it every two years and then having to respond to the AG should the AG want to see those DPIAs. Like you have to produce a list of them within three days and then the actual DPIA is within five, I think, which is like, if you're not accustomed to doing DPIAs, or even if you are, that seems like a, like a big heavy lift. So I have to be constantly doing that inventory and making sure that you're, you're up on that. And then the other thing is this, you know, guessing of ages. Do you, how does that work operationally in terms of me being able to tell if you're 17 and 11 months or 18? Like, how are we making those guesses? Do we have systems for that in place? So let's talk about the DPIAs. Uh, And actually, those were expanded at the the relatively late stage of the bill. Um, So I think people are actually, even who've been paying attention to the bill earlier, surprised by the the comprehensiveness uh, and just basically the impracticality of doing the DPIAs. Um, and the most important thing to remember, uh, putting aside the fact that DPIAs basically are often just viewed as a compliance function. And so they're, you know, they're just cost without necessarily clear benefit. Um, the reality is that those DPIAs are going to become very hot legal documents because the AG, when they ask for them, are going to be going through them with a fine-tooth comb, looking for ways in which they cut corners and didn't satisfy the requirements, or worse, admissions of liability that will be weaponized against the business. So the business is not going to be codifying uh, their DPIAs um, uh, for the AG's sake. This is just basically like, here's a gift to the to the prosecutor about ways that they can, uh, they can uh, penalize businesses. Um, and can so, I jump in with a question on yeah. that? So does that mean that you have to then, because uh, I was I was chatting with Lynette Atai about this the other day, and she was saying like, those are, as you're saying, those are documents that are usually internal facing, and they're like very honest and brutal. Like you're trying to estimate, like, could there be harm? And, you know, it's a compliance exercise, but like, we're going to really like look at this. So do you mean that now you either have to get like less brutally honest because the AG may look at this, or do you have to do basically like an internal DPIA and then like sort of a second one that would be like uh, okay for public presentation, or is that even allowed? I'd have to check to see whether or not you could keep uh, early drafts of the DPIA uh, from the AG if they were uh, out requesting discovery. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, the whole idea behind the DPAs generally is the idea that you want this kind of introspection, this, this candid self-reflection. Is this going to be a net benefit from a privacy standpoint? But the way this bill frames DPIAs, it frames them as um, basically legal documents with substantial legal consequences. Um, and as a result, uh, the... Uh, um, they're going to be written by lawyers for lawyers, and they're not going to advance any of that kind of candid self-reflection that was the whole point of having a DPIA 
in the first place. So, you know, again, this is a, a good example of the counter moves. The counter moves is you're going to have lawyers write them. You're going to put them under attorney-client privilege um, so that they are not uh, going to be freely discoverable in draft format. Um, and then uh, they're going to be written with really one audience in mind, not management or decision makers. They're going to be written with how is the AG going to pick this apart and weaponize it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're writing anything, it's like you have to think of who your audience is. And if it's your colleagues, it's one thing. If it's uh, for the public and the AG and the prosecutors, it's quite another. Um, I cut you off. Were you? Were, do we have more to talk about DPAs or did you want to talk about the uh, age verification? Um, so uh, let me just mention the other obvious counter move that, you know, this is so screamingly obvious to everyone that I feel bad saying it. But the counter move is, you're not going to want to do the DPIs. So how do you avoid doing the DPIAs? You don't allow kids to have access to your service. So this is just one of the first places that we're going to say that the counter move isn't treat kids better. The counter moves is treat kids as pariahs and dump them. And so, you know, I'm sorry to give you the big picture takeaway, but one of the biggest picture takeaways from this bill is the California legislature said, we want our kids to have a more a less robust internet. We want our kids to not have the tools that other kids throughout the globe have as part of their development process. We want to hobble their digital, digital literacy and exposure. And then once they turn 18, we're going to lease them on the world and somehow they're going to figure it all out. So this is one of the things that just makes really no sense when you think about the idea of protecting kids online. You cannot protect kids online by keeping them from being online. And this bill actually is a huge motivator to doing that. Right. And the alternative to that, right, is, okay, we are going, we don't know how to verify. Um, we don't have those mechanisms in place. And so we will just go with the default, which would be to treat everyone who's coming to the site as children, which would be like, a crippling move, right? Because you're going to lose out on all sorts of opportunities if you're making the most, if you're, if you're making it the most privacy protective setting by default, you're not going to be able to reap benefits from the data you would otherwise be allowed to access, right? Well, again, it's not just about privacy. And that's, again, one of the lies in the bill is that this is a privacy bill. No, this is a kid's safety bill. And so you have to think now about all these online features that are not going to be easily understood by children, but that are perfectly understandable by adults. And if the answer is you can't have those features or you have to reconfigure them so that they now become understandable by children, it just makes the internet dumber. It just reduces the overall range of functionality. I think most businesses are not going to choose that option, that they're not going to say, let's have a one-size-fits-all kids and adults. Only where that makes sense uh, will they choose to do that. But all the other uh, services uh, are going to say, the kids aren't worth it. We can't make enough money uh, from them. Um, they they bring too much legal risk. Uh, so off they go. Fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about this whole gauging of ages, though? I'm curious, like, have sites figured that out? Because sites who are bold into COPPA, like, you have to be able to figure out if I got kids under 13 on my site. Is this something that we can do operationally? Like, from small business to large business, uh, if we're considering everyone under 18? So let's talk about some nomenclature here. So there's age authentication, where you actually confirm someone's age. And there's what's called age assurance, where you make an estimate of people's age. And you know that there's going to be some variance, a range of um, assessment, uh, but um, uh, but it isn't precise. And that's okay. Um, and 
Arguably, the bill does not require age authentication. It requires age assurance. But functionally, I see no difference. And I feel like that doesn't really advance the ball forward. Um, there are two principal ways to authenticate age. Uh, the first way is to do some kind of facial recognition uh, or you know, facial analysis where you look at somebody and you say, okay, people with that facial structure in the, in the following age band. Now, that age uh, um, uh, estimation has actually gotten pretty good. Um, but the privacy people are freaking out about that because that means that children are, are, are having their face uh, uh, captured and processed by some entity that we don't even know if we can trust them or not. Um, so the solution sounds fine. Like, okay, just let the machines figure it out. The reality is that sounds like an extremely privacy invasive solution that most privacy advocates would actually strongly oppose. The alternative is to do a document based analysis. So give me your, um, uh, give me your, uh, 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 license, uh, driver's license, or if you're dealing with kids, give me your school ID. Um, and maybe you can get some uh, age estimation uh, off of that. And of course, those are also extraordinarily privacy invasive requests, again, with sites that you don't even know if you want to visit, with a vendor that you may not know or trust, and they're getting your driver's license with all the goodies that are on it. That's the kind of stuff I don't really want people to, to capture and analyze. Um, and I certainly don't want my kids sharing that information with sites that they don't know whether they can trust and whether or not um, uh, the, the, the vendor will be secure enough uh, to protect their interests. So this is one of these things where the cure is almost worse than the disease. The idea is that in order to, to protect children's privacy, we need to do this extraordinarily privacy-invasive approach of either analyzing their faces or forcing them to reveal uh, documents with personal information on it. Um, and, uh, and so to me, uh, this age authentication or age assurance process is really the payload of the bill because that alone changes the internet dramatically. Um, whether it's done either way doesn't really matter. The fact it's being done at all is what, what will uh, uh, reshape the internet. Yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in the name of protecting them, we're going to collect even more data. Uh, and we know that, you know, third-party vendors are a problem we haven't really solved in the internet ecosystem yet. Um, all sorts of breaches and uh, problems occurring because people either aren't thoroughly vetting their vendors or their vet their vendors just haven't caught up with, you know, best practices. Well, um, and so I'm sorry to being... jump in on that. Just to point out, uh, my understanding is that one of the leading age uh, authenticator uh, vendors was uh, offered by MindGeek, which was it was critical to their business because they're in the porn business and they wanted to try and segregate out uh, the underage uh, users. Um, but the idea that then we're going to trust them with our children's most precious uh, information um, just seems counterintuitive that that would really be what the legislature wants to have happen. Right. Do we have a sense that, you know, I don't know if everyone has tapped into this pocket of folks who are really incensed about this, because again, like it was sort of a sleeper issue that people haven't necessarily, I think we were all paying attention to the, you know, this federal bill and, you know, life's crazy in the privacy space. And so I think people are just now coming around to this issue. Do you think that Governor Newsom has a sense that like there's a very upset if if they're a minority, like they're very upset and concerned, is he going to just sign this no problem or do you think that he'll maybe veto, push back? I remind you, it is an election year. And not only that, uh, Governor Newsom is uh, trying to position himself for running for president. 
So if he thinks that uh, touching that third rail of uh, children's privacy online um, is going to undermine either of his two goals, it's an easy call. Um, mm. and, uh, and, and so that then leaves, you know, what are the other ways in which this bill might be curbed? But, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say except that this is what happens in state legislatures. And we've seen so many terrible ideas coming from state legislatures across the country. We can't really even keep up with them. And we have to have a heart to heart with ourselves. Like, how are we going to make sure that we can have an internet that, that we think is robust and that we think actually accomplishes our society's goals? Because the legislatures are working directly against that. Mm. What is what are the enforcement mechanisms look like? I know that the violations can be pretty steep. It's like per affected child uh, and even worse if it's if it was intentional. Um, Is the AG going to enforce this law and what role does the CPPA play in enforcing this? So uh, my understanding is that uh, the uh, AG is supposed to have exclusive enforcement of the law. now, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, there's a bunch of implications or consequences of that. Uh, so um, the AG uh, uh, has to go through a cure period. Um, they're supposed to give notification of a defect um, and give businesses a chance to cure it. Um, that was part of the uh, the CCPA, but not part of the CPRA. And that has actually really changed the way the AG does its work. Um, it slows them down. There's no doubt about it, that they don't like cure periods because they basically have to do all that outside of the public view. They can't issue their press releases showing how uh, they're zinging businesses for, for terrible practices. Um, and so I don't know how the AG is going to handle the fact that they have to run through uh, this uh, cure period. Um, I will mention California has a, a relatively unique law. It's called 17200 that says if there's any other legal violation, um, then there's a private right of action. Um, so it creates a private right of action where one none was directly intended Um and uh, and just it creates another way for plaintiffs to establish that. Now, this bill uh, tries to eliminate that private right of action back door, but I guarantee plaintiffs will test this um, and they'll look for every possible angle to uh, to weaponize this. They will also be extremely eager to get their hands on those DPIAs. Um, so even if they can't sue directly, that that uh, those DPIAs are going to be a gold mine for whatever other case they're bringing in parallel. Um, so. The AG is ha- is going to be subject to this cure period. We don't know how vigorous they're going to be. Private uh, plaintiffs are supposed to be sidelined, but they're going to they're going to go into litigation fiesta uh, using the direct uh, approach, uh, which might not work, and then they'll use the backdoor approach. And I can see this being like a, an ambulance chaser's sort of heyday because there are so many if I understand this correctly, so many services, apps, platforms, sites that wouldn't normally be captured, like don't normally have to comply with children's laws because it's not even if you're like, if it's, if I'm correct, it's not even if it's a a service geared towards a child, it's if you have knowledge that they frequently access your site. Right. And so like, you don't necessarily have to be a kid's website or app to have to comply with this. And therefore it's going to create a whole, a really steep learning curve for some of these companies to get compliant. And I would imagine in the meantime, folks that want to make a splash or plaintiff's attorneys that want to like cash out on this could really go after 
uh, some of the folks who are new to this game. Do you see that happening? I, I don't, because I think the dominant counter move is going to be to get rid of the kids altogether mm-hmm. so that you don't have to do the DPIAs. And therefore, that won't be discoverable. And you don't have to run through this gauntlet of, um, of plaintiffs looking for ways to, uh, to sue over the children. Interesting. Okay, gotcha. What else do you see happening in terms of counter moves to overcome this potentially devastating legislation? So uh, the bills functionally forces uh, most online businesses that do business in California to uh, deploy this age assurance, age uh, authentication process. Um, there's uh, exceptions for some smaller businesses that's built into the, uh, the contours of the CPRA. Um, so some of this, the small businesses will be able to continue as they have in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the sites that, that we use are going to be large enough to be triggering the bill. And so many businesses are doing business in California, even if they're not based here in California, that this is going to have a national and possibly global effect. Um, so we're going to see likely because of this bill, uh, the rollout across the internet of widespread age authentication or age assurance, um, uh, uh, uh technology. Um, and this is just, it's really bad news for the internet. It's going to hurt everybody. Um, because then in order for us to go to any site, we're going to have to validate our age. Um, before we even get in. That means we're now pre- presenting personal information to a service that we don't know with a vendor who we don't know whether or not we can trust them. Um, and it just adds friction to the movement around the internet. So, um, you know, uh, there's all kinds of times. You see a link, you click on it, it's not what you want, you click back out. Now you see that link, you click on it, you're presented with a change of authentication, you're not going to stick around to find out if it's relevant or not, you're just going to back out. And so what's going to happen is it's going to reinforce users' loyalty to the services that they already have a relationship with. Um, and it's going to discourage people going and clicking on sites that they don't otherwise know. So it just ossifies the Internet. It makes it hard for the new services to launch and to get traction because of the fact that they have to overcome this, this psychological burden. And it means that the smaller services that aren't robust enough to cater to a user's complete needs they're just not going to get the business because it's going to stick with the people that uh, to the services that they're loyal with. Now, many of those businesses that do age authentication or assurance are going to also couple it with identity verification. They're going to say, I want to make sure that Eric Goldman, when he logs in, has already been age uh, verified. Um, and then he'll have a persistent green light to deal with him as an adult. Now, when that happens, we're going to see less ability for us to be able to engage with each other in anonymous or pseudonymous contexts, or at least in terms of unattributed uh, contexts. So we can't talk to each other um, uh, in an unattributed way. And there's a lot of reasons why that unattributed unattrib- uh, conversations are essential to us. For example, that's whistleblower content, that's negative truthful consumer reviews, um, that's uh, a, you know uh, talking about uh, really tough social issues um, that people uh, don't always want to um, uh, reveal where they stand. Um, and so 
a bunch of activity is going to go away with the identity verification is coupled with the age authentication. So we're going to be going to the sites where we know. We're not going to be clicking on links that we don't know. We're not going to be navigating the age verification if we think we want to know unless we really have to. And we're not going to be able to talk in the same way with each other because of the identity verification um, that we're used to talking with each other. So like these are massive structural changes and they don't uh, they don't benefit the kids at all. Remember, my hypothesis is the kids are just going to get tossed overboard. So all these changes are only going to affect adults. So the whole idea of this is a protect kids online bill was a misnomer because of the fact that it's really a screw up the adult internet. Um, and uh, and I, I guess a lot of voters, when they realize what the legislature has done to them, were getting pretty upset that they that the, the legislature passed a screw up the internet for adults bill. <laughs> If, if for every action there's an equal or opposite reaction, uh, what do we see happening in the legal space to combat maybe the damage that this bill could do? It seems in- inevitable that this bill will be challenged in court. Um, and there's a variety of le- cogent legal challenges. I'm just going to mention a few. Um, so uh, the most obvious is a First Amendment challenge. And this bill, especially as applied to venues that actually enable users to talk with each other, um, really screws it up, those conversations. There's a bunch of things that just aren't meant to allow people to talk to each other in ordinary format. And we had a, a, a First Amendment challenge on this 25 years ago, where the idea was to, uh, that Congress required websites to put content that wasn't safe for kids behind an age authentication wall, and the Supreme Court struck it down as violating the First Amendment. So the legislature just went straight into the teeth of 25-year-old precedent from the Supreme Court, uh, that's going to create potential problems for the bill. The bill is also going to raise problems under uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause, which basically says only Congress can regulate interstate commerce. I think that the CPRA and CPA might have been vulnerable to a challenge that. Nobody, none has materialized. But absolutely, this bill, because it is so pervasive in its effect, um, that will degrade the ability of businesses to be able to run their business, um, that there may be a dormant commerce clause challenge here that will be cogent. I think there'll be questions about whether or not this bill is preempted by COPPA. It covers some of the same ground as COPPA, but does it differently. And in particular, I point out that COPPA is predicated on the idea that parents could waive the requirements in order to allow their kids to do stuff. It put parents front and center in the law and uh, the, uh, the, the uh, ADC takes parents out of the equation and says, this is not a parental choice question whatsoever. It's a, a negotiation between the businesses and children. Parents are, are an invisible player. So I think there could be a COPPA challenge as well. There could also be a challenge under the CCP, I'm sorry, the CPRA which allows con- uh, the, the state legislature to amend the CPRA only under certain parameters. And I think that those parameters were not met. I think it's pretty clear. The bill tries to say that it met them, but that was just another part of its lies. Um, and so it's possible that the legislature never had the authority to anchor this in the CPRA in the first instance because the CPRA had limits on how it could be amended. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot of potential grounds of litigation. I'll mention one other that I think is less relevant, but still potentially relevant to the extent that it controls how sites are talking to each other and creates liability for the conversations between users. That's also going to be a problem under, uh, section 230, another federal law. 
Um, so, uh, so there's definitely going to need to be some legislative moves. I think the real question will be, will there be preemption at the federal level of all of the state consumer privacy laws? We just saw yesterday, I don't know when it's going to air, so, you know, uh, in early September, we just saw uh, that um, Representative Pelosi or Speaker Pelosi said we can't allow federal preemption because it would take away things like the ADC from California. But there's there's no future um, uh, for a federal privacy law that doesn't get rid of something like the AADC. If it does that, it doesn't solve any problem for anyone. Mm. Lastly, before we wrap, I love talking to people who are passionate about any topic because uh, when they're lit up, uh, the conversation lights up and it's just more interesting. Where does your passion for this come from? Like, are you fired up because you feel like sort of lied to by the legislator? Are you fired up because you have kids and you want them to have access to all the things they need to learn and grow? Where does your, where does your fire come from on this? Um, so I've been working in internet law for uh, about 30 years now, and my entire career has been dedicated to helping the internet improve our society. And so when I see laws that are taking away the ability of the internet to help our society, I get really upset because that's not what our legislature should be doing. They should be working to make the technology better, not make it worse. Um, And I get especially fired up when I can see the train wrecks that legislators create where they clearly don't understand how the the law will be uh, uh, deployed in the field. And so they think they're solving their problem. They pat themselves on the back for having done a great job. They go to their voters and say, vote for me because I took care of the kids. And then they've just set in motion this train wreck that will have all these ripple effects that will be counter to the goals that they have. And that will be counter to the what we as voters pay them to do, which is to help make our world better. Um, so yes, my passion comes from the fact I love the internet. The internet is an essential part of our future as a humanity. And to see legislatures taking these steps that are anti-internet in ways that will hurt all of us makes me really upset. This is not what they should be doing my tax dollars. 